Welcome to Lightcast with Stephanie Gast, a podcast where we cast light on mental health, sexuality, and other human experiences we keep in the dark. I'm your host, Stephanie, registered associate marriage and family therapist on the road to licensure. Disclaimer, this podcast, including any references and resources, are for informational purposes only. Anything said should not be taken as a replacement for medical, clinical, professional advice, diagnosis, or medical intervention. My podcast may cover sensitive topics, including, but not limited to, abuse, suicide, violence, mental illness, sex, drugs, and alcohol. Your discretion is advised. If you haven't watched Disney's new animated film Encanto yet on Disney+, Plus. You should pause this, save it for later, go watch the movie on Disney+, and then come back to listen because there are some major movie spoilers ahead. Okay, I'll give you a second to pause. All right. This beautiful film touches on some major themes that impact a lot of families. I will explain my analysis of the film from a family systems perspective. Join me as we discuss each of the main characters' brilliant representation of common family roles. I just have to say, I loved this film so much. Again, I hope you paused if you haven't watched it yet because we're about to dive right into it. But this film was, it has to be maybe my favorite, my favorite Disney film that they've ever put out. It was the most relatable, the most real and told told a story that is is all too familiar to so many people, um, which I think is why it's been so uh, it's captivated so many people and it's touched so many hearts. Um, I personally have watched the film I think eight times, um, cried like a baby through most of those watches, um, but I you know once I you know, as a, as a therapist, you know, and thinking about the deeper things that people go through and psychologically how we handle things, I, just from the first watch, I knew that this film was hitting on things that were so deep. <laughs> um, talking about, uh, we'll get into it, we'll get into it, but there is some generational trauma being played out through this film. And, um, it was really, it was really beautiful to see how they represented a lot of, um, of, of struggles that families go through. Um, and I, so once I watched it the first few times, I was like, okay, I don't know how much these writers did their research, but these main characters um, are really representing some classic family roles that have been kind of coined in the psych, the psychology community, um, specifically in like family systems and family therapy. So family roles, let's just get into it. I keep saying family roles in the introduction, like what are these family roles? So first in, first in general, they were originally coined dysfunctional family roles. So I personally don't, uh, enjoy that term. Um, I don't think, in my uh, perspective, I don't find the roles dysfunctional. Um, I think they very much do serve a purpose. But 
this has been now kind of a collective research that has been continued to be kind of um, built upon um, for many people in the community of psychology. But originally it was created to describe family roles that happen within a family of someone who struggles with addiction. So that is how uh, these roles were first started to be identified as were these dysfunctional family roles because the dysfunction was living in a home where a parent or one family member suffers from addiction. And so that's why the word dysfunction's in there. Um, but for, for the sake of this, um, we're going to leave that dysfunction part out because they very much do serve a purpose and they serve a function. So first created for families around addiction, started to realize that these roles that they had created for this one specific archetype of a family actually uh, transpired across many different kinds of families and a lot of different things. So what we know now is family roles can happen within a family um, under stress. And that stress can look different for every single family, right? Um, specifically, what we'll focus on is kind of like the main four, which is um, if someone in the family is struggling with mental illness, addiction, uh, trauma, um, or a death in the family and grieving. So these four major things would result in a person having difficulty self-regulating their emotions. So mental illness, right? Addiction, which usually has some mental, mental illness capacities underneath that. Um, trauma as well. Death and grieving. Those are really tough, heavy things that a person experiences in this life. And so naturally, these people may not have the tools or the insight or the awareness of like what they're dealing with and how to deal with it in a healthy way. And so like we do as humans, we start to develop these protective mechanisms and we try to do things in a way that that makes us feel safe. But sometimes those things, they don't always come off the, the healthiest for the rest of the family. So family roles really happen for the other family members. So let's say we're going to just, to keep it simple, use an example of a family where there's one parent in particular who's suffering from, from one of those four things. So one parent, let's say in this family, is struggling to self-regulate their emotions. What will happen is that the rest of the family feels this stress. However, it ends up kind of getting projected in the family. And members of the family will unconsciously kind of take on a version of some of these roles to not only kind of ease the stress and help kind of rebalance the family structure, but on an, an, un, on an unconscious level, they may be doing it also to avoid self-reflecting about the painful or stressful experiences and feelings that they themselves are going through within this family. So it's not like somebody consciously takes on, like, I'm going to be this role in the family. It's a very unconscious system that happens where under stress, this is a protective way children, other family members often take on to help 
themselves and the family cope with their family dynamic that may not be the healthiest or making everybody feel good and happy. So now that we know what family roles are and why they come up, there's another aspect to this of what these families typically abide by. So there's three unspoken family rules that, again, dysfunctional would be the word, but I feel like that word is a little harsh because I think, again, when these rigid rules come up in a family, I think they usually have some kind of protective mechanism from the person who holds that difficulty self-regulating and dealing with their true underlying feelings. But these rules can be quite rigid and for children especially, it doesn't foster a lot of openness and communication and trust. So the three rules that these families, a family where these rules will be needed to take on as a, as a form of protection and coping, the three rules would be first, don't feel. So again, it's not a, a clear cut rule that's written out. It is unspoken It is a message that you receive within this family that it's too scary to feel or even share your feelings about the home life, about the family dynamic. And if you did share your feelings at one point, it was likely that someone in the family made you feel, you know, shamed or rejected or abandoned for saying those emotions. And so eventually just leading to suppressing those emotions. So that's rule number one. These families don't feel, they don't foster that for the rest of the family. And then don't talk is the second one. Don't talk. So being told to literally shut up or being ignored when they are sharing. So it feels like, well, why talk? learning from a young age that it's not okay to express yourself. And this also goes as far as implying don't let anybody outside of the family know what is going on. So that's a big one too that happens in a lot of families is this keeping this family image and let's uphold this family image so don't tell other people what really goes on in our house. And then the third one, don't trust. That one is formed basically because of the first two. Learning that your feelings hurt too much or it's not worth expressing your feelings or thoughts. I mean, yeah, you wouldn't you wouldn't trust the environment or people you're around. So you learn that you can't not only just not trust other people, but maybe not even trusting yourself. So those are some three common um, rigid rules that some of these families may abide by. So now let's bring it into Encanto. Encanto surely related to a lot of people and families in the Latino community. And of course, this message can transpire across many cultures and and, um, many backgrounds. Um, But the generational impact Um, that was demonstrated in this movie is exactly also what happens with these family roles. These things get passed on. If you want, you can go back and listen to my podcast on intergenerational trauma, where I really break down like why these things keep getting passed on. 
So Disney's Encanto really showed how a lot of multi-generational families um, feel and, and what they could experience. You know, living in a family where there's like really, really traditional rigid beliefs and a set of doing things that you have to fit this certain mold. You can't truly express yourself or be authentic to who you are for fear of being rejected by the family. Holding the weight of someone else's expectations or needing to just repeat the same toxic family behaviors just because that's how it's always been. And, you know, I want to talk about this part of it because as much as people, I think, enjoyed Encanto, I did in my research um, see that there was a far bit of a response of people who, um, you know, felt like it was very unrealistic, the ending. Um, and of course, hopefully you've watched it by now, but the ending um, of Abuela and Mirabel coming together and, you know, the family reconciling and moving forward in this beautiful, happy ending. I think for a lot of folks who have experienced the pain of kind of the story that it was telling, know that it's not that simple. It's not as simple as you confront the toxic family member and then, um, you sing and you get, you know, you fix the family and it's all good. You get this beautiful, beautiful, happy ending. And I think, you know, for those who still carry that pain of, of knowing that it's a lot, it's a lot more complicated than that, that seeing that ending played out so, you know, picturesque, um, didn't feel realistic for some. And I get that. And so I wanted to talk about that for a second, because you know, for people, again, multi-generational or dealing with family members and breaking cycles of families, um, you know, that breaking that generational cycle and trying to rebuild a new family foundation that's healthier, I mean, that can take a lifetime. I mean, sometimes it doesn't even happen in one's lifetime. And that is um, the tragic truth of the pain that generational trauma just pass on. And so, of course, the ending of Disney's Encanto was the dream. I mean, that's the dream outcome. And so, you know, many of us, myself included, like long for such a day, you know, in that family to have that, that generational peace being acknowledged and, um, you know, uh, together as a family and like getting to that place. It's so beautiful. So I think a lot of us have longed for that day, which makes it so hard to also, you know, watch the film and and why, you know, it touched so many people's hearts, I think, as well, because that is the dream. It may not be that easy to go sing and we're a big, happy family again, but but that's that's the dream, definitely. And so aside from, you know, the beautiful magic and music of this film, this story, this um, message is really what was at the center, at least what I think from watching, was at the center of the Madrigal family. And so now I want to talk about each of the family roles. So the family roles, there are a certain set that are um, pretty much set in coin. So We've got the mascot, who's the comedian. Uh, we've got the lost child. 
we've got the scapegoat, we've got the hero, and we've got the caretaker. I believe those are the ones that are, you know, really solidified across a lot of um, different therapeutic views. Um, of course, there are branches of these and these that kind of expand to more specifics, um, like the golden child and the peacemaker. Um, these, so there's other ones that end up actually um, breaking out of some of the original core five that I listed. Um, and I will explain each of them a lot more in great detail when I speak of each character. So in my eyes, each character represented one of these almost to a T. Um, I don't know if I said this already, but when I watched it for the last, I think, two times, I had a notepad and a pen and I was pausing and I was writing details. I've listened to the music countless times, analyzed lyrics. I really gave this film a lot of attention. And um, a lot of the main characters, like the main ones in the Madrigal family who have powers for the most part, or Abuela and Mirabel are the only ones I did that who don't. But the main, main characters of the film really represented some of these roles so spot on. So I'll go through each one using the main character as that example to help, you know, explain the role more specifically with some examples as well. Okay, we're going to begin with the matriarch of the family, Abuela Alma. So she is the really the epicenter of everything the family is and what they're dealing with. So for her, I would have labeled her role as the trauma holder. So there's a lot of different ways we could have named that role, like I said before, right? Someone who was the parent who had addiction or the parent who was suffering from a mental illness. Um, in her case, I believe it is the, the trauma of losing her husband and dealing with the grief. And so for that reason, she is the one who has impacted the rest of the family. So we're going to spend a lot of time on Abuela right now because she is uh, she is the core of this family and um, it really has so much to do with her, her life. So Abuela Alma, she had to flee her home to escape from armed conflict. She witnessed her beloved husband killed before her eyes. He sacrificed himself to help her and her and their three infant triplet babies and the rest of their community. He sacrificed himself so they could get away and start a new life. And, you know, this trauma, this her her loss was located at the at the river. And oh, whew, Oof, that scene is painful. That scene is painful to watch when we finally get to see um, the whole story played out. Um, but in the beginning of the movie, Abuela does not go into it very deeply. She kind of skims right over the loss when she tells the story of how they got their miracle. Because this is how. In the river, the, the magic the magic happened and they were granted a miracle that helped build their casita, their little house, 
who um, who Abuela communicates with. Um, Abuela doesn't have any powers herself, no magic powers, but she can communicate with the casita very well. And, and so after this great, great loss and trauma, a miracle happened. And now she's off to raise her three triplet infant babies alone, grieving. Um, there's a part where she puts on her, her black shawl, and that's kind of that moment. That moment she put that black shawl on, she was now grieving and on her own. And that is, that is a pain that so many of our um, ancestors and older family members have gone through, um, a lot of immigrant parents as well. And this, this, this pain of what people go through, um, I mean, certainly will leave a lasting impact. So as Abuela Alma is you know, traumatized by this, it, it impacts how she connects with her own children as they grow up and also how she relates to her grandchildren. So she was so determined to protect her family and protect and preserve the miracle that they were given that day. So much so that she, you know, hoists these exceedingly, exceedingly high expectations on her children and grown grandchildren and kind of clutches to that miracle so tightly. And of course, you know, losing everything that she knew and loved, that didn't feel safe to, to lose that miracle and to sit with feelings of disappointing the community who they helped because of that miracle. And she had so much, you know, weight on this that, you know, I think a lot of um, people will, you know, relate to this with family members that they have in their lives, but there's a, a fear of them getting vulnerable. So instead, there's this almost um, tough mask, hard mask on. And for a lot of people, they just see their family as that really tough, you know, really tough family member who never cries or never gets upset, um, who needs everything perfect, gets everything done right, all these high expectations. And um, in Abuela Alma's case, I, I really think that her, that she really masked her grief and her pain and her insecurity of losing the miracle and everything that her family stands for, that she masked all of those really, really, really vulnerable, painful emotions as invulnerability, being so strong and stern. And she, you know, uses perfection as a way to hide behind those, you know, insecurities. So she really kind of projected that need for perfection on a lot of people in her family. Because why you be perfect, which means I'm perfect, which means our family's perfect, which means we're good. We don't have any problems. We're not struggling at all. And so it's just a total inadmission of any any true emotion that's there. And then paired with that, she had a lot of denial of the problems as well. 
And of course, this denial along with the perfectionism like really kept her from feeling any painful, vulnerable emotion that somebody who experienced as much trauma as she did, you know, will go to the end of the earth to protect yourself from feeling that. Because if anybody has went through trauma, they know that it can feel like life or death to let those feelings in. So you do anything to not feel those painful feelings. And I think that's how she masked it, as being that really strong matriarch of the family, high expectations, really stern. And so, um, you know, there's one really great part that I think represents um, that need for her to kind of uphold that family image, um, where I think it's when the cracks are starting to happen in the house and... Um, things are not good. And the I think the town's starting to get worried. And Abuela goes out there and says, I think something like, everything is fine. We are the Madrigals. And just slams the door shut as the whole house goes in uproar. And I think that scene like really beautifully demonstrated that desperate need for her to protect that image and protect that idea of being vulnerable that she I mean blatantly goes out and just lies and just asserts that they are they're the family madrigal they are strong they are good and just shuts the doors while oh chaos ensues inside and that's a really really common thing that happens for families that go through this stress and take on these family roles because like I mentioned before those rules I don't feel don't talk don't trust Right here, Abuela, I mean, this whole time, Abuela is doing don't feel. She's not letting herself feel the pain, the weight of expectations, the insecurity she feels. Like, she's not, she's ignoring all of that and hiding it from the rest of her family. You see that when she goes over to the candle and she opens her locket to talk to her husband and, and begs him to help her understand so she can save this miracle. And the the just closing of the emotions and just you know, saving face to the community, even though there's chaos inside. And that's a, that's a lot of what families will experience with that. Don't talk, don't talk, don't dare let anyone outside of this house know what's going on. And then, you know, losing, losing the family's miracle. That was Abuela's main concern. She was so scared that the miracle was going to get lost. And, you know, in my analysis of this from a psychological perspective, I think that Abuela was, you know, so scared of losing the miracle because if she lost the miracle, that meant she lost the only thing that she gained from the loss of her husband. And that would mean facing the pain of her trauma, facing the pain of her grief, and just sitting with it with no magic to distract it, no other beautiful things, just sitting with it. So her desperation to keep that miracle, I think, really had to do with her protecting that trauma, protecting that pain. And so when Mirabel later ends up confronting Abuela, and for all the kind of things that she's doing that's hurting the rest of the family, but not seeing it, this 
this again is forcing Abuela to actually tap into those emotional, those really vulnerable emotions. And so as a protective mechanism, what does she do? She lashes out at Mirabel. She blames her. She yells. And so as, you know, that's her protection. She was forcing her to sit with the discomfort of her feelings and she didn't want to. So she yelled instead and she blamed her. But of course, this ends up with the destruction of Casita and the loss of the miracle. And with nothing, you know, Mirabel runs to that river because she's ashamed and guilt-ridden over this whole confrontation with Abuela. But, you know, now that the miracle's gone, the house is gone, Abuela is left to sit with her grief. And that's all she's reminded of. And it kind of almost in a way smacks her in the face and makes her realize, like, I have been not focused on the right thing. I'm so focused on the miracle and not realizing my family is what's most important. And so she goes and she walks over to the river and finds Mirabel and tells her the vulnerable story that with the details. Not like she did when she was five years old getting ready for the gift ceremony. She kind of went right over the the painful parts. But this time she tells her the story of how she lost her husband, her home, and really how they got the miracle. And she takes accountability for losing sight of the miracle that and that, that it was really family. That's the magic. And understanding each other better, the family reconciles and rebuilds. So again, right, that's that beautiful picturesque ending right there at the end. Usually confronting this parent or problematic person in the family doesn't quite go that simple. But this is a beautiful, beautiful idea of how it would ideally like to go when you confront the family member who is projecting their own pains and stressors on the family, confronting them them getting a chance to actually tap into the vulnerable feeling behind why they were acting that way. And then actually taking accountability for their actions and moving forward together as a family. So that's a beautiful way that ends, but I hope that gave a good explanation at least of, of what, at least from my perspective, what Abuela was kind of going through from a trauma perspective. And, you know, I know a lot of other people saw the movie and thought Abuela was a, a villain. And I think those people sadly missed the message of the film. Um, and so I hope they rewatch it and can see it with more compassionate eyes. But I do think, you know, like I said in my research, that people who had that kind of response may, may know the pain of this generational trauma all too well. And they know just how difficult it really is to confront that toxic family member. And so they don't believe in, in, in forgiving that toxic family member for their toxic behaviors just because they went through pain. But that sounds like a lot of unhealed pain there. And, and the, the, the lack of understanding that parents or family members who do these things, they're just people too. They're people who've gone through things and they've coped and protected themselves in ways that maybe we just don't understand. And doesn't excuse it, doesn't make it okay, doesn't make their toxic behaviors okay. Um, but at least it gives some kind of greater context. 
that can help you kind of understand your experience. So hopefully that's what this does too, as I break down each of the family roles. So now let's get into it. So we know the matriarch, the matriarch of the family. We know how she is the center of this. So let's see how this generational trauma gets passed on and how these um, family members cope by taking on some roles. So we're going to start with the three triplets. So Alma's children herself, the triplets, Julieta, Bruno, and Peppa. So we're going to start with Julieta. Julieta, I believe that she is the caretaker of the family. And her gift is healing people through her cooking that she cooks. Sorry, the food that she cooks. So she, she is the town doctor. Um, and she, she uses, right? So she uses her cooking to pretty much heal like any ailments in the whole community, people's cuts or broken bones and things like that. And so, you know, as the person whose magic power is healing, it may come to no surprise that hers is caretaking. I think at least that's the role that I think that she takes on is the caretaker. And so the caretaker assumes the role of the rescuer um, or the fixer in the family. They feel it's their job to kind of fix the pain or fix the problem and save the family from the issue. As an adult, they're likely to choose a profession in caring or helping since it comes so familiar to them, which is no surprise with Julieta. I mean, her power, that's what she does. And uh, they also uh, may attract relationships that are like projects so that they can keep fixing. Because without fixing, without being of service, without helping, they don't feel like they have much purpose. And so to help, to constantly help feels um, comfortable to them. They feel comfortable in that role. And so Julieta really, I think, takes on that role as the person who heals people. And one, um, you know, one thing that I thought was really interesting when I read, you know, in my research doing more um, reading about each role that the caretaker may attract, right, relationships or friendships, people who they take on as projects. And in the movie, her husband is accident prone. And so he's constantly getting bee stings that she constantly has to keep fixing. Um, so I think this was kind of, a, you know, when I realized that it made me laugh, because like, oh, wow, to a T, uh, she, she helps people, she heals their problems, fixes their pain, um, and then also happened to marry an accident-prone husband who she can keep on fixing. And so again, for the caretaker, that would mean you keep getting your worth. You, get, you keep getting that feeling of satisfaction from that. So Julieta's the caretaker. Bruno, I believe, is the scapegoat of the family. That's the role he takes on. His gift is precognition. So he can see into the future. He can see visions. Um, unfortunately, he is blamed for a lot of the negative outcomes of those visions, um, making him an outcast from the whole family and community. So the scapegoat of the family is usually considered the problem child or um, really they are the truth teller of the family because they're actually verbalizing or acting out the problems the family is trying to deny. So the negative attention that gets put on the scapegoat 
child of the family actually serves to distract the family from the real issues at hand. Um, and so they, they're pretty much um, blamed for everything that goes wrong in the family. Hence the name. They're the scapegoat. So Bruno plays this. I mean, this is, this is yes, this is Bruno. There's a whole song. We don't talk about Bruno. <laughs> he is exiled from the family. He is blamed for the bad visions he would have. He's blamed for, you know, um, for being kind of the problem of the family. So we don't talk about him. Therefore, we're good. We don't have problems. Bruno's gone. Um, so that blame really gets placed on him, which makes him, you know, the scapegoat. Um, so I think pretty clearly that that's who he is. And unfortunately, because he maybe is so close to Abuela that that's his mother, right? It's not his grandmother. That's a little bit more removed, but because that's his mother, I think it's a lot harder for him to, um, cope with that role. So he just left. He just left. Beppa, their sister, Bruno and Julieta's sister, the other triplet, I believe she's the chief enabler of the family. Um, and her gift is to, um, her emotions control the weather. So her emotions certainly impact the weather. Um, and so the chief enabler in the family is the martyr of the family. They um, support the toxic behaviors that the family member does um, at the cost of their own well-being, um, which pretty much ends up enforcing them to feel codependent. Um, and they shield the problem parent from dealing with the consequences of their own behavior. So the enabler is kind of the cent one of those five roles that I said that are kind of the solidified five. So the enabler can sometimes look like the caretaker. It can also sometimes look like the peacemaker, which I'll talk about in a little while. So sometimes these all kind of go into that role of enabling, which means supporting, you know, the toxic behavior that's going on. And so in this case, Abuela is the one who is kind of demonstrating some more toxic behaviors that aren't helping the family um, individually. So Beppa, I think she's the chief enabler because she seems like the one who is certain, I wouldn't say closest to Abuela, but she certainly talks to Abuela a lot. And she tries to kind of maintain the family rules for Abuela. So she's like one of the main people who also is like, we don't talk about Bruno. We don't talk about him um, and really sticks to that. And she also has a lot of pressure to be perfect and suppress her emotions from her mother, Alma, Abuela Alma. So she has a lot of pressure. And so she kind of supports, she's been at least supporting because, I mean, it seems like she's very anxious and she has kind of a hard time regulating her emotions so maybe at one time it was a lot easier for her to be perfect, but I think they're about maybe 50 years old now at this point. And so at this point, maybe this has been almost a lifetime of trying to uphold Abuela's expectations to be perfect and have her emotions under control. So that behavior that she's been trying to suppress her feelings, get them under control, all for the sake of Abuela trying to get her to appear perfect, to hold the family image, 
you know, so there's a lot of times in the movie where Peppa is upset and there's a rain cloud over her head. She's frustrated. She's anxious. She's trying to do something. And Abuela is like, Peppa, please, the, the cloud over your head. And she's like, Mama, I know there's not like there's nothing I can do about it. Like, what do you want from me? And that's so much weight that her daughter has had to carry to try to save face and try to control her emotions. So it looks pretty. Um, so that's like one of the main reasons why I think she's kind of enabling Abuela's behavior. Um, and then she also has kind of that codependent side of her as well because of that. So because she has a difficult time regulating her, her emotions, she ends up marrying her fun-loving husband um, who kind of helps her regulate her emotions. And then there's also a scene where we see her son Camilo help her get calm. So he's there to kind of calm her. So there's kind of these um, moments in the film where we see that she has kind of that codependency a little bit that she needs someone else to help soothe her emotions because she has a hard time. So now we're going to, hmm, maybe we'll go with Beppa's children first, and then I will go to Julieta's children. So Beppa's children, first, the oldest is Dolores. So Dolores, I think, has the role of the lost child in the family. She has the gift of enhanced hearing, so she's got superhuman hearing. <clears throat> she is, although she can hear a lot, she is really quiet. She doesn't speak often. Um, she hears a lot of what the family's got going on, as she can hear everything, so she knows all the family secrets. <clears throat> but she does try to stay out of gossip, so she does keep to herself a lot. She's very quiet. So the lost child of the family is basically the invisible child that blends into the background. They escape the family stress and conflict by making themselves small and quiet. As adults, they avoid conflict and struggle to even talk about their problems. So they're super avoidant. <clears throat> so not expressing their, their feelings a lot, um, but really they kind of blend into the background. That was their safety. As everything's going on in the family, their, their purpose has just been to blend in the background, to stay out of the main light. <clears throat> and that's been their protection. So in Dolores's case, I mean, she is super quiet. You know, there's a lot of perfectionism being projected on the family and high expectations. Like, I can see why she would have blended in the background. <clears throat> so not just her quiet, her quiet and shy demeanor makes me think this, um, that she's the lost child. But she also is the only one who knows Theo Bruno never left the house. But of course, knowing all the family rules and knowing that talking about Bruno would cause problems. She doesn't say anything. So that's another thing that I think makes her the lost child is that she knows what's going on, but she purposely stays out of the conflict and just keeps her mouth shut because she doesn't want to start anything. <clears throat> then we have her middle brother, Camilo. So this is Peppa's middle child. Um, his role, I think, is the mascot. His gift is shape-shifting. So he can shape-shift into other people in the family, community. So he is like a natural entertainer. He loves to make people smile. Um, and so he tries to be helpful to his community with his gift. So the reason why I think he is the role of the mascot. So 
the mascot brings humor to the family during stressful times. They're the ones trying to keep it light during stressful moments. They, you know, the mascot may feel powerless in this family. So to ease the situation and have some kind of control over it, they are the comedic relief. So they turn into a comedian. Um, And, you know, due to the you know, if there's a lot of conflict, maybe they're not also in the limelight a lot. So maybe they, you know, develop some low self-worth. And to make up for that, um, you know, this is like their way of kind of trying to get into the spotlight is being a comedian um, and making themselves feel good about themselves. Um, Because, you know, these people can tend to, as adults, mascots as adults, they can have difficulty like things not constantly moving, like there needs to be constant motion of things. Otherwise they may get anxious because they have to sit with themselves. And sometimes that may look, you know, it's so hard to kind of just sit with themselves that they overcompensate by being people pleasers. So they just try to help and be helpful and be what people need them to be. And wow, does Camilo represent this one like really, really well? So his whole gift is shape-shifting. His whole persona is, I'm not going to be myself. I'm going to be whatever anybody needs me to do for them, whatever's better. Um, So he really shapeshifts to help people and also make them smile. So sometimes he, you know, shapeshifts into people to give them a little laugh, um, lighten the mood. Like when Antonio, his little brother, was about to go to his gift ceremony, he was very nervous. And Peppa was all anxious about it and all this stuff. He breaks the tension by um, shape-shifting into his dad and, like, makes a little joke to try to make his brother laugh. And then there's a time, too, where he's just kind of walking by. And I think a taller gentleman in the community is trying to pin up a, a banner. And Abuela looks at Camilo and says, like, you know, we need another one of him. And so instantly, Camilo just shapeshifts into this taller person to be helpful and, like, does it. So um, that is, like, a great example of how he just shapeshifts to try to be helpful, kind of people pleases. Um, and he, you know, being always trying to shapeshift to be helpful, right? She's like, oh, I need, I need someone taller. I don't need you right? So it's like he has to take on somebody else to feel worthy, feel like he was purposeful. And so that's how it can kind of lead into that low self-esteem. So I'm going to now talk about Antonio, his little brother. Ah, sweet little Antonio. So their little brother, um, I believe, has the role of the peacekeeper, um, or at least starts to show Um, some resemblances of that as he is, you know, the youngest um, out of all the cousins, I believe he's five years old, um, having gone through his gift ceremony, um, which his gift is communication with animals. So he um, is the closest to his uh, cousin Mirabel, who uh, doesn't have a gift, and he is so accepting of her. Um, He's very sensitive and non-judgmental as he's you know, one of the ones who's closest to her and kind of empathizes with what she goes through. And so the peacemaker of the family um, has, you know, this really sensitive, calm, understanding nature to them. They're 
they just have this gentle soul, you know, that can't tolerate conflict or discord. So they try to help. They try to be a peacemaker and to um, help mediate some situations um, in family stress or family conflict because they don't like conflict. So they try to be the peacemaker and help. Um, and so I do believe, you know, I, I was like going back and forth if whether or not I thought he really was the peacemaker, because like I told you before, the peacemaker, the caretaker, and the enabler are all kind of similar. And I, I didn't see him quite enabling um, Abuela's behavior. So that's why I, you know, I loosely say the peacemaker, because he just started to show some tendencies of that. He's the youngest, being five years old. And so I think he's more kind of representing the pressure that all of them are under because he's the first grandchild since Mirabel who did not get a gift at the ceremony to have a gift ceremony. So there was almost like extra weight on him as he was the first one to see if he was going to get a gift since Mirabel didn't. So he had like the ultimate weight of expectations of this family. Um, it was like amplified for him, I think, because of that. So some reasons why I think he is the peacemaker, what I think he kind of demonstrated that showed those kind of tendencies um, was, right, he really empathizes with Mirabel. He's so sensitive to what she's going through, you know, saying, like, I wish you had a gift. And he ends up being so scared, um, you know, that he's going to let down the family. And what if he doesn't get a gift at the gift ceremony? So that, that, that fear that he had around you know, just being another person who doesn't get a gift to, to let down the family and kind of shows that he's kind of scared of causing that conflict. He's scared to, you know, be the one to let down Abuela and cause another, you know, like another kid who doesn't have a gift. So there's so much pressure um, that he was feeling. And I think um, him kind of hiding and scared was kind of his way of like keeping the peace for himself and just that fear of disturbing the peace. Um, and, you know, also he ends up, um, offering to help, um, Mirabel and Bruno kind of save the family by offering his bedroom, um, when they need a space to do Bruno's vision. So he comes to the rescue and is helpful and offers his own space for them to save the family. So he shows that kind of selfless side of him where he wants to help them, um, help the family ease the stress, and he, he just wants to be helpful. So that's why I think he showed some tendencies of being the peacemaker. So let's get on to now Julieta's children. Um, these ones I think show some of the most, um, you know, they, you know, I think these three children, uh, Isabella, Luisa, and Mirabel, showed some of, um, you know, most emotionality behind these roles. You know, we got to know a little bit about Dolores, Camilo, Antonio, but but these three sisters we get to see a lot of um, in their songs as well, which show so much. Um, so let's see, let's start with the eldest child. Um, so Julieta's eldest daughter is Isabella. So Isabella is the golden child of the family. I mean, it's actually even stated in the lyrics that she is the golden child. Um, so she takes on that role, um, I think. Uh, and her gift is summoning plant life. Um, and so she 
actually, this is something that I don't think maybe a lot of people are paying attention to, but she kind of holds um, a very striking, striking resemblance to Abuela when she is in her youth. So when we get Abuela's flashbacks, Isabella really kind of looks like her. Um, and she is the first, so now eldest grandchild for Abuela. And she's seen as the angel of the family and Señorita Perfecto, Perfecta. She is super perfect. Right? So she's the perfect kid of the whole family. So the golden child, you know, like the name suggests, you know, um, they receive a lot of the problematic parents. So whoever this family member we've been talking about, whether it's a trauma holder, the person who has mental illness in the family, whoever that person is, um, that person ends up projecting their positive projections of themselves onto the golden child. So... This is really common in when it's the eldest child, especially if the child is the same sex as the, the family member. So we're going to specifically talk about it with them. So in this case, it's not from a parent. It's from Abuela and Isabella, her grandchild. So Isabella was the very first grandchild she ever had. And like I said, she's, as she's grown up, I think she actually holds a lot of a resemblance to Abuela when she was younger. And so on some unconscious level, Abuela seeing her, her being the first grandchild and having that kind of resemblance, she projects a lot of her positive um, attributes onto her. She wants her to be perfect. She wants her to uphold this image. She wants her to marry. She wants to, you know, she's projecting all of this good stuff, all the perfection. Oh, we're all good. And look at what Isabella is. We're perfect. Everything's perfect and holding her to such high, high standards. And, um, you know, the negative attributes don't really get projected onto the golden child because that would mean that they had something wrong with themselves. So that stuff never gets pointed out. Um, but of course, the golden child always having to live up to high expectations and, you know, lacking this individuality, um, they can grow this insecurity within them that they are never going to be loved for who they are. You know, they hold this high expectation or this, you know, projection of the family member and being loved for that image that they put out. Um, but being truly, you know, deeply afraid that being exposed for who they really are and like not being loved for that. And so Isabella shows this, I mean, to a T, right? The lyric in the song even says she's the golden child. Um, she has all the high expectations to be perfect from Abuela, suppressing her feelings of not wanting to marry, not wanting to be so perfect all the time. Um, and she was doing that to uphold the family image. She had that pressure. Um, and there was like a few interesting things, um, with some of the songs for Isabella. So, you know, her song was, you know, all about, breaking free of being perfect and how a lot hides behind her smile and letting go of that. Um, but something that I think is interesting in earlier song, when they do the song of, we don't talk about Bruno, um, the whole message about, don't talk about the scapegoat. <laughs> He's the problem. Let's not talk about him. Um, there's a scene in the round where they're all singing and spinning around each other towards the end of the song. 
Um, and this one was like one that like you really have to listen to it to hear it. Um, but as they're all singing their individual melodies like they were prior in the song, Isabella is like spinning around and at one point she's singing, I'm fine and I'm fine and I'm fine, I'm fine. She's like trying to convince herself that she's fine in the song. And I think like, ooh, it gave me goosebumps when I finally saw that scene and I had no idea that that, that was snuck in there and it's so subtle. Um, so it's already setting us up to see that, that she wasn't happy. She wasn't happy. This was an image she was, she was putting on. Um, and then something that I also think, um, fits really well into all of this stuff of, you know, how the whole movie played out. So when Abuela, so, so, okay. So right after Isabella's song with Mirabel, Mirabel comes to hug her. That's how they believe they're going to save the miracle. After the beautiful song, you know, they, they finally hug and the miracle gets brighter and, and things are on track. Um, but of course, at this point, at the end of the song, Isabella has, you know, broken free from her perfection shell and she's um, doing other, she's creating other flowers and plants and she's messy and she's got, um, you know, all this color all over her dress and um, all this stuff. And Abuela comes over and she, she's so, she's fuming, already coming over. Um, and Mirabel is already trying to tell her like, we've got this, we're saving the miracle. This is what we needed to do. She wasn't happy, all this stuff. And I think it's no surprise that this is the very moment that the casita started to crack. Because when I talk about all these family roles, there's, there's nothing, there's no one who would I guess you'd say trigger uh, Abuela as much as it would the golden child. So like I said, the golden child is being reflected. Isabella has been projected all of Abuela's positive attributes onto her, almost making her kind of like live the life that she would like. Go get married. That's what you're supposed to do. Um, and almost seeing herself and living vicariously through her, being perfect, being beautiful, getting married, all these beautiful things. And so when that gets disrupted, when Isabella is no longer acting perfect, when she's messy, when she's having fun, she's, she's acting different. I think that makes perfect sense why Abuela came over fuming and did not want to listen to Mirabel because she broke like her projection of her own perfection. And she had it. She was angry and she lost it. And um, I think that was very, very telling in that moment that that was the moment that Abuela just couldn't take it. And she said, you know, she took everything out on Mirabel and then the cracks started to form right after that. So I think like really that confrontation with Isabella not holding that perfection for her anymore was, ooh, like it was um, eye-opening and it was one of the like, it was the epicenter of a lot of the pain she was holding. And when that got disrupted, it, it did not go well. Um, so, so that is why Isabella is the golden child. Um, now we've got Luisa. Luisa is the middle child of, uh, Julieta. And I believe she holds the role of the hero in the family. Her gift is superhuman strength. So she's, you know, always helping her family and community, always trying to be of service. Um, so the hero is the over-responsible and self-sufficient one in the family. They're always having to be brave and strong. 
They're driven to achieve the family's definition of success, um, maybe not their own definition of success, but trying to uphold that, which can often lead to them like compulsively overworking and um, burn at, burning out eventually because of how hard they're working to achieve that. And so because they're always trying to measure their worth from how much they're doing, from how much they're accomplishing, accomplishing um, how much, you know, they're almost getting validated by other people for doing nice things for them, um, they end up just never really truly feeling good enough. Their, their worth is always being measured externally. So they end up really suppressing feelings of insecurity and adequacy. Um, not feeling good enough if they can't be a hero. And wow, Louisa's song really uh, opened it up for us of why um, she is the hero. I mean, her whole song, Surface Pressure, um, was about that. It was um, completely about the pressure that she's, uh, that she's undertaking. Um, and she literally says in the line that she's pretty sure she's, she says, I'm pretty sure I'm worthless. Um, if I can't be of service. And if only she could shake the crushing weight of expectations, would that free some room up for joy or relaxation or simple pleasure? But instead we measure this growing pressure. That's what she says in her song. So she measures her worth by that growing pressure, that need of those high expectations and it leaves her feeling, you know, drained and not having any room to, to, to relax and not be the hero for once. Um, she, you know, she just takes on so much for the family. And gosh, that song was really one of those moments where I was like, okay, this movie is really going deep with showing these roles because hers was spot on. So she's clearly overburdened by the pressure of high expectations and doubts her self-worth if she can't be helpful. And, you know, lastly, Mirabelle. Mirabelle doesn't have any gifts, just like Abuela. And I believe she is the role of the cycle breaker in the family. So she's the only grandchild in the whole family not to have a, have a gift. Um, and she does feel like an outsider, but she always remains pretty optimistic that she is something special inside. Always trying to be helpful in her own way. So just like the scapegoat, the cycle breaker gets blamed for all the family issues. So like I said with Bruno, him being the, the truth teller as the, as the scapegoat, he's telling the truth of the problems that are happening. But like I said, he was too close to the matriarch. He was too close to the, the person who holds these expectations. So he just outcasted himself. He, he, you know, didn't hold on to those truths, he, he chose to go away from them. But Mirabel, even though she is kind of labeled the black sheep of the family, um, and kind of scapegoated a lot of the time being blamed, um, she, she chooses to stand up and tries to break the cycle. So that's why I labeled her the cycle breaker. Um, so she gets blamed, you know, for all the stress of the family, all the miracle, the whole miracle is blamed on her. Um, and the cycle breaker, you know, being, you know, they're, they're pretty much the most honest person in the family because 
they're unable to repress the injustices and the toxic things that are happening. And they're willing to step outside of those toxic family traditions to establish something healthier and better for themselves. And so, wow, does she do that? I mean, her song, um, Waiting on a Miracle, ooh, that song gets me every time. She has a line where she says, I, I can't keep down this unspoken invisible pain. And that I think says it all, that they're all feeling this unspoken invisible pain, but she can't keep it down any longer. She's the one to break it. She can't, she can't just try to uphold that anymore. And then later on, she says that I would heal what's broken, show this family something new, already kind of setting up this you know, like I can heal where the problems are at, I, you know, and I want to show this family something new that it doesn't have to be this way. So she already had this beautiful intention of kind of being this cycle breaker. Um, and, you know, so I've already said like where she was already rejected and blamed by Abuela for not having a gift, for being the cause of the miracle being lost. Um, and then she's the one who goes against all the family norms and actually confronts Abuela and holds her accountable for her actions. Although, right, it didn't go well. The cracks happened and it led to where it needed to go. But that opened up that ability for her to have that conversation with Abuela, hear her story, hear her pain, understand the pain maybe in a way that others don't, and understands why everything has been going on the way it is and that it's time for a new family foundation. And she does that literally and symbolically by helping them uh, rebuild Casita with a new foundation. Uh, and it's, uh, it's, it's beautiful to see that it, it led there, that they got that new family foundation and Mirabel finally got seen for, you know, everything that she's been going through through the whole film. Um, and it's nice to see Abuela, you know, at the end too, you know, say that she was holding on too tight because she was just scared of losing them. Just like she had already lost so much. She was just clutching on so tight. Um, so yeah, that's, that's everybody. Um, this, I, I can't talk enough about this new, this movie. It is so well done. The, the lyrics, the music, the, the whole story, everybody's character um, is so beautifully written and totally shows the story of generational trauma and how one kind of projects their pain in a way that ends up impacting the rest of the family along the way and how we all in some ways kind of take on those roles um, in the family to cope with stress, to protect ourselves. Um, and that's what it is. These are all protective mechanisms. So, you know, the enabler wants to, doesn't want to cause conflict. So they enable, they become codependent. They don't want to cause problems. They just do what the status quo says. Um, the caretaker and the peacemaker both just want there not to be conflict or pain. So they do what they need to do to help and mediate and take care and fix and the hero, just like the golden child, have these really, really high expectations that they uphold. And 
the lost child is, you know, off in the background, just trying to avoid conflict. The mascot's up in front trying to relieve the stress with comedic relief um, and humor. And the scapegoat is sadly blamed and just used as a distraction to ease the family's problems from focusing on the real problems, I should say. And the cycle breaker is, you know, oftentimes looked at as the scapegoat. They're probably treated as the scapegoat. But um, for all you cycle breakers out there, I hope this movie, um, you know, was a good one to watch and hopefully gave some hope in there. And I hope you enjoyed the movie and I hope you enjoyed this podcast, hearing how the roles really were demonstrated so brilliantly by the writers. Um, So I hope you enjoy it. I hope you enjoyed this breakdown. Thank you for listening to this episode of Lightcast with Stephanie Gast. New episodes are out monthly. You can visit my website at www.stephaniegtherapy.com or you can also follow me on Instagram at Stephanie G Therapy. Take care.